This season of The Ready State is sponsored by Uller, the makers of the chili pad. Juliet and I got married. Even before we got married, we were a little bit like Lady Hawk. What do you mean by that, baby? <laughs> I mean, one of us was Michelle Pfeiffer. One of us was Rutger Hauer. We were like, uh, I was a wolf at night and you were the hawk by day. And what I'm saying is that I sleep at 100,000 degrees and you freeze. You go to bed with a Like sweating on. hot, sweating you, hot. But yeah, no, I don't have to. I just have to have the room cold. Meanwhile, you put a sweatshirt on, you go to battle, like it's the white walkers are coming. You have no idea what it's like to be me. That That's very true. Then we were at a convention. I ran into Todd, saw the Chili Who Pad. Who is the founder of Chili Pad. And I, in two seconds, I was like, I don't know what this is, but this is going to change my life and I need one. And we walked out of there with that thing underneath my arm and it has- I think I got it for you for your birthday. Changed my life. I have slept on it. I mean- Look, there's a lot of talking about biohacks, you know, like hack this and drink this and go to bed and nothing has changed the quality of my sleep, density of my sleep like this thing. So, so we're clear, what this thing does is it can circulate cold water underneath your sheet all night long, drops your core temperature, you don't wake up freaking hot. And if you are the frozen one, Michelle Pfeiffer, you can turn it up to hot you know, you can actually heat your bed with this thing. So imagine a peaceful kingdom where more than one time a year, Matthew Broderick is, is, is meeting Michelle Pfeiffer and Rutger Hauer together. And they, we get more than one, like you, we don't fight anymore about what the temperature of the room is. I sleep great. You sleep great. I'm telling you, the, the Uller is the game changer. To learn more about this amazing product and get a discount on it, head to Chili Technology. That's C-H-I-L-I technology.com slash TRS and enter TRS 25 for 25% off a chili pad or TRS 15 for 15% off an Uller. And then you too can sleep like Kelly. Hey everyone. I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. We are pumped to have Gabby Reese on the podcast today. She is a legend on and off the court. Not only is she a pro beach volleyball world champion, but she's also a New York Times bestselling author, model, actress, Nike's first female spokeswoman, TV host, and leader in the world of health and wellness. Her lifelong passion for fitness and healthy living led her to create HiX, a high-intensity group fitness program that is a platform to inspire men and women worldwide. Gabby is an avid proponent of empowering people to take responsibility for their own health. Together with her husband, surfing legend Laird Hamilton, she founded XPT, which stands for Extreme Performance Training, which has quickly become a captivating new way of strengthening muscles, increasing cardiovascular and endurance aptitudes, enhancing mental focus, and incorporating unique breathing techniques into the workout. Her book, My Foot is Too Big for the Glass Slipper, A Guide to the Less Than Perfect Life, has continued to inspire women across the globe to challenge traditional norms and find personal happiness. Gabby has been featured in countless magazines as a contributor, model, and as a featured athlete and celebrity. She has also appeared on more TV shows than we can name here, as well as in film. Gabby has become a role model to women worldwide, including me, in achieving peak fitness, good health, and overall well-being for themselves and their entire family. We are so excited to have her on the podcast today. Welcome to the Ready State Podcast, Gabby. We are super excited to have you. I can hear it in your voice, J-Star. I can hear the excitement. <laughs> hey, if you're, if you're just catching the, the Ready State Podcast for the first time, Gabby uh, I consider she's like family. She's our family. So this is this is honestly a little bit so familiar because we love Gabby and she is uh well she's she's the older sister I didn't know I needed. <laughs> yeah, notice how you said the older. That's right. The older. I meant I meant like the the head okay, sister. Well, I'm totally, I'm totally kidding. Okay, <laughs> what we're we talking about? Let's just get into it. Let's get into it. Okay. So as you know, this whole season is about aging and longevity, and we have you on because you're really good at it. And before we get to that, though, uh, in, unless people have been, you know, under a rock, uh, they should know about your storied and amazing volleyball career. But I'm hoping you can just give us a little bit of background on how you found volleyball and mm -hmm. a little bit about your college and professional career. 
Okay, so you want it really short? I'm 6'3". <laughs> so it found you? Okay. I'm, and I have no other skills except to jump around. <laughs> no. So the long, the quick story is I sort of really fell into volleyball my junior year of high school late. I know for all you psycho parents out there who have your kids doing 19 months of club volleyball. Uh, I actually didn't yeah. know that. It was I didn't late. know it was junior year. It was. I dabbled in the Caribbean. I grew up in the Caribbean, moved to Florida my junior year, highly organized. You know, we're, you're in America then. And uh, I was six, I am six, three, 15 years old at the time. I'm obviously not 15 anymore. And um, they were like, you're going to play volleyball and basketball. And you know what's so great? The expectation is that I would be good at it. <laughs> That's actually not the case. And, uh, but I had, I, I sort of could take direction to be totally honest. I got more offers for basketball than volleyball. Cause I had a better basketball coach in high school and decided that after I went to a BC camp, a blue chip camp for basketball, that I liked the idea of a net between my opponents and myself, especially girls that were like six, eight <laughs> or girls named lady who could almost bounce, uh, off the bounce slam dunk. And they were five, nine. So I was like, yeah, maybe I should play volleyball. And I went to Florida State. I had an incredible coach at Florida State that uh, helped me not only fall in love with being on a team, um, but also taught me just some really valuable life lessons. And then after I finished playing four years uh, at Florida State, I think because I was so late to the game, I, I still had a great deal of enthusiasm. And I, I, I really enjoyed that environment of, you know, working hard and meeting yourself each day. I think there's something that was really um, empowering for me and also being part of a family, probably one that I didn't really have growing up. And so um, I think I was still in love with the sport. And then I moved, I was um, working at the time in New York in fashion. I had been for about three years and I actually paid to play my last two years at Florida State. So I wouldn't get in trouble with the NCAAs. I moved to Miami after I finished school. There I picked up the beach game. And after about a year and a half of that, I had somebody there say, you should move to California and play professionally. And luckily I didn't know better. And I was like, that's such a good idea. <laughs> and uh, I moved to California um, and started, I was drafted on a four person tour right away. Um, and the rest, you know, I had a, a very good college career. I, I think, I believe I have records still at the school. So either they have had not many talented athletes or their schedule is shortened up or something. But um, I have records that are close to 30 years old there. And, um, and I had a, 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 a solid professional career. And if I can be honest, I think I was always juggling many things because the platform was so small. So I had a lot of side hustles. I, I was doing other things that uh, supported my habit of playing professional volleyball. And um, I don't know, I think it's one of the greatest things for me because, you know, I met a lot of athletes that are groomed to be champions. I certainly was not one of them. And also it was just about winning and losing. And for me, I think I use sport as a way for not only opportunity, but really, if I can be honest, personal development. That's an unusually very mature uh, way to think about your career. I'm sure you thought about that when you were 19 that way. <laughs> um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about getting to hang out with you and then hang out with the people who are hanging out with you is that you really can see the whole elephant. I mean, you're not just holding the snout. You know what it's like to play in college. You know what it's like to try to be a struggling professional athlete. You know what the demands of being the face of a sport. Mm -hmm. And then also those things sometimes come at large costs and that we aren't approaching sport in life with sort of this longevity piece. I mean, you know, your, your knee is a great example and just the, the costs and the demands of sport. So how, how do you think now, if you go talk to yourself then, what would you change a little bit? Because I think as we talk about mm -hmm. aging, we can't talk about aging unless we're talking about where we came from and what we're doing then. I think it's a great question. I think for me, uh, I always, and I said this to a group of athletes recently, um, I, that I would have paid more to more attention to the things that were in a deep way, uncomfortable to me, which would be flexibility and mobility. I, I, of course, like everybody really was okay with discomfort. So the pain of working hard and being out of breath and all of those types of discomfort, but that deep 
unsettling discomfort that mobility and flexibility can be for an athlete like myself, I would have paid more attention to that because the reason I had an artificial, I got a knee replacement uh, three years ago at the age of 46, which is, you know, in the grand scheme of it, things pretty young was that I was, I, the repetitive trauma, yes, but it was also if I had other things more mobile and working correctly, I could have redistributed the load and my body could have handled it. I definitely believe that. So, um, you know, Laird is a great example of somebody who somehow manages to do all the hard big things and all the hard little things. And I was sort of like, hey, I only have so much time in the day, so I'm going to focus on that. So I think I would have told myself that because I, if I had understood, just do 30 days in a row, just do 50 days in a row, just do 100, you'll see the difference. And I didn't have the patience for that. You know, I think it's so interesting you say that because um, this is always the issue for us in the work we do, which is getting people to care before they get injured. Mm. And, you know, uh, other than hearing from people like you who wish they could go back and sort of spend more time working on their mechanics and mobility, you know, do you have any other words of wisdom about why people should care (laughs) before they get injured? Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because people even ask me now, like, well, why do you train so hard? And I'm like, if you've been in sports at all, or let's say you're a survivor of cancer, J-Star. Yes. You don't need to be told so many times how important your health is when let's say for example your knee is so hurt that you can't get off a toilet or you're going through a treatment where you think to yourself huh in this very moment i'm very clear about all the little simple day-to-day things i've taken for granted and so if i can contribute to making all of that easier so i don't have to meet that again i will and unfortunately well, actually, and fortunately, most of us kind of go through life until we've sort of hit an accumulation point. If we haven't had a catastrophic incident where then we're breaking down or we're not well. And the problem is, is we don't have the mindset or the skill set to know how to tackle that. And the other interesting thing is people actually don't have the belief of how much they can impact their wellness. So they sort of surrender that to, well, oh, this is happening to me. So I think athletes understand it because they've not been able to move. And I think people who've had uh, something to contend with on a health level, either through a loved one or themselves go, now, when we really get down to it, one of our greatest assets is our health. And, um, And then having people see what's interesting, though, is how do you have guides to help you put together a real strategy and plan about how to do that because you might even have the desire, but you don't actually know what to do. Right. Let me, let me ask you this in the retrospect, because you know, we both have a stubborn, strong women daughters and Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, I, I do feel like you ultimately you are a reflection of your environment. And like, we just didn't know when then we just did what we, everyone else did, you know, Oh, I don't need to stretch. I won't stretch. I don't need to eat like a human being. It's fine. Just eat red vines because they have protein. <laughs> right. I don't miss red vines. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we actually one time looked at the package and we saw that it, a red vine had a single gram of protein. And we were like, this is amazing. All we have to do is eat like 10 or 15 of these and we're set. And then we realized it was like 10 red vines equal to one gram of protein. <laughs> After we were about a tub deep. Yeah. We we never do that math when we're looking at the sugar, right? But somehow with the protein, you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's totally fine. But I was, I was, hey, young they're, fellas, hang on. They're fat free, though. They're fat free. Right. So that was important. Do you think that there's a, I mean, we're in our 40s. Uh-huh. You and Laird are in your 50s. Do you think oh, that there's. I have like two more months before I'm 50. Holy hell. Excuse me. We went to high school together. We're, I totally apologize. I'm just joking. Do you think that there's a, a most important decade? I mean, where because you we, we have this incredible machine. We buffer it. We run it hard. You can put it away wet. I mean, you can just ride this thing until you can't. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, is there a point when it really matters, it really matter in your 20s? I mean, the people who train with you are are varied from different aspects of their career. Some guys are finding you late. Some guys are finding, like Danny finds you very early, right? Mm-hmm. How, um, 
Is, is there a maximum decade that you think we really got to pay attention and buckle down because it's going to pay dividends when we're 16, 70, 80? 110? Yeah, I mean, I'd hate to put limitations on it um, because I, I have seen it. So for me, it would be how hard are you going? Mm. So if you are running real fast, then you better come late 20s into your 30s. If you're sort of a civilian who has a real job and unfortunately you're sitting in a chair and doing that, you could probably pull off a little bit later because the great thing about athletes right is they're so high performance but they will hit that wall quicker because they get there faster and so um but it also varies obviously it varies on your genetics and your overall lifestyle because let's say you know you're not doing some of the mobility things but you live a pretty clean life and your eating's pretty good and you're getting to bed and you're sort of in a healthy relationship you know you're in healthy relationships with friends and such so I think people have to realize that all of that is part of the deal. And so if you said to me, a, a, a guy or girl who's doing something that is really hard on your body, maybe contact and things, I think late 20s would be pretty important. And, and it actually would be important, let's say you're an NFL player, so that you'd be walking at 60. And you see this with very tall basketball players, same thing, where let's get them, you know, in their early 30s. Um, and But again, you can't have that conversation without, without the whole story. So you, then you'll get these guys or girls, uh, and I'm not sexist, but it seems to be a little bit more of a masculine trait where they're sort of like, are they trained so hard? And then they're out until like two in the morning, and then they're eating whatever. And you want to say, okay, so you're doing all this training. It's pretty brutal. You're demanding this of your body, but yet you're not taking care of the other buckets. So I think that that if you're not paying attention to a lot of it, then sooner is better. If you're in a rigorous contact sport, probably a little sooner. Um, I think you can really thrive forever if you catch some things in your early 30s. Having said that, I'm still of the belief if you haven't done, again, some really catastrophic damage to yourself that uh, today's the day um, and I'm 49. So I, I think that that's also partially what keeps me going is I still believe you can actually make that better. I can't be younger, but I could make that better because I keep thinking. So when I am 60, 70, 80, I wanna get off the couch and the toilet without putting my hands on my knees or my legs to get up. And um, I wanna have a high quality of life. So I still think, always. But if you're talking about straight athletes, I mean, that's what I, I, I think. Now, if you're talking about an athlete that shoots a gun or an arrow, bow and arrow, that's a different, that's a different conversation. So I think I have sort of a two-part question. Um, you know, first of all, how has your training changed over the years? And then, uh, secondarily, you know, what are you prioritizing right now in your own training? Or, or living, or right? living, because I, mean, you know I, I mean? know, yeah. You guys have a pretty rad system that seems to be very consistent and works. Yeah, I think uh, the training in ways is shorter and harder, if that makes sense. And I'm trying to find the ways to stay strong. That's been another thing as we talk about aging, where there are days where literally I'm like, <laughs> I feel like I'm melting. I can't handle the volume anymore. That's the that's my killer. The volume. Well, that's it. You don't like you can't crush your joints every. You know, it's just, it's not, it doesn't work. So I think for me, that's why I do like the water or things that are of low impact, but that reinforce those better patterns. Um, that's really important to me. Um, and then as far as like, as a, as a human being, uh, you know, that's so much harder, right? Like those working on those nuanced things about your own hardwiring. So for me, I'm trying not to use anger as a response to fear. That's a big one for me. And I'm so I so I meddle up pretty I can meddle up pretty quickly uh, as a response to when something makes me uncomfortable. I go, you know, sort of in attack mode. And um, so I've been working on that for several years. And because I also believe my lack of flexibility in my body is connected to some of my lack of flexibility in my personality, which has served me very, very well, <laughs> and only to, but only to a certain point. And, and people, for people who think that these things are not connected, certainly they are connected, right? So I think it's, it's kind of really 
saying, I'm going to expose myself at least to a couple people and certainly at least to myself. Like I have to be honest, at least with myself about like, huh, you could do that better. And, um, and so, and, and acceptance and also uh, not trying to control things or re, you know, react so quickly. Um, so these are things I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do. So I'm shortening my training. Uh, some days, maybe it's like the other day I trained with Laird, which is like a, oftentimes a mistake and Elijah, and I was somehow in the middle of them. So we were in three lanes and I'm like, why am I in the middle? And it was, even though it was work, it was very cardio oriented. So then maybe today was more of a, of a resistance of a lift of something else, because I'm like, okay, let's see if we can balance some of this out. So the other thing I always tell people too is, hey, listen, you might schedule Wednesday as your day off, but if you feel badass on Wednesday, train on Wednesday because maybe Sunday's your day you're tired or Saturday. So I think that that's really important too is getting that relationship with where you're really at. Not, I don't feel like it, but hey, I'm genuinely tired. So I'm going to actively recover and drink extra, maybe eat more calories and like take care of myself today and get back after it tomorrow. You know, Kelly and I have really tried to tap into this desire to train feeling rather than having some sort of set schedule, like three days on one day off. This doesn't work. Yeah. We're just trying to like really pay attention. Like if we just really don't feel like doing something, we don't. Especially since that drive. I mean, I can't speak to everyone else, but I wake up thinking about what I want to play, do, train, lift for the day. And if If you don't wake up with that feeling, I mean, I, there's like, it's like hollow, like someone just cut away my demon. Right. And, and then I really worry that I'm like, Oh, this is all in my head. It's, it's not real. But then when it comes back, I'm like, Oh, I really was listening. I didn't want to train. My body was telling me what's up. Yeah. And I, I do think, especially if your eating's pretty in check, people don't realize it is not really about killing yourself six, seven days a week. It's about training intelligently, doing diverse things. Um, maybe one or two days is pretty hard. And so I think that that also at times can be the, a misconception that it's just misery each day. And in fact, sometimes it's like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm just kind of getting some of this done. So speaking of eating, I know that people would love to hear sort of what your, you and Laird's nutrition routine is and how that is. I mean, we already talked about red vines. Um, so yep. we know there's that evolution, but sort of how it's evolved over the years and, you know, sort of what you're focused on nutritionally right now. Oh my goodness. Well, I grew up, you know, the funny thing is like, you know, we carbo loaded before games. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, what's so crazy. People are still doing that. They come on. It's still a thing. I just saw someone on Facebook saying, my daughter's soccer tournaments in Vegas. Where can we go carbo load beforehand? I was like, wow. Yeah, so she, so she can bonk on her 12 minutes of energy. Um, yeah, no, I, so I grew up with that thinking. So I even took that early into my career. Like, well, there's nothing wrong with a bagel. I mean, it's just a carbohydrate versus like, oh, the glycemic index on that bugger is off the charts. Oh, we didn't talk about that till, um, you know, late, late nineties, but I would say now, uh, first of all, I will say that we, I, we eat a lot less. What I, I think a lot of my past eating, it's different when you're competing, um, or let's say you're going a long trek, certainly your caloric intake increases as you know, with your appetite. But if you just really pay attention, I think I eat a lot, you know, so much less and I try to eat when I'm hungry. So in the morning I just have a coffee with a bunch of healthy fat till about 12 I may or may not have lunch depending on how I'm feeling. If I'm like, Hey, I could ride it out and eat a really early dinner and have it be big. I sometimes will do that. Um, and you know, as close to the source as possible. So, you know, nothing fancy plants and animals. And, um, and even like last night was a, was a vegetarian night because it's like realizing too, when you get into the habit of eating certain things, because just that's what you do like meat. And, and then sometimes recognizing like I can, I need to back off that. And Paul Chuck talks a lot about listening to your body and, and not just, you know, Oh, a a belief or an ideology. So I try to eat for how I'm really feeling, um, which might be like some nights I might be like, I don't know why I would like more green or more sweet potato randomly or more fat. Um, but it's definitely not rocket science, what we're doing. And, And like most everyone, you know, I recognize that sugar is, you know, that's what I'm trying to minimize always. And it's in everything. Yeah. You know, one of the things that is kind of a, a bummer for me when I come to your house is there's very little sugar. Is there? 
I, uh, I always have to, it's like BYOS, you know, I have to bring my own sugar and sneak it into the basement. No, it's like we all have to hide from Laird and then like go to bed at eight or something. <laughs> I'm just, I'm afraid of having straight turmeric injected into my, my bones. I know, right? Um, one, of the, one of the things that, um, you know, is hidden in that sugar and you guys really, I have to, I have to credit you, really did change our lives is that we really stopped drinking when we realized that, uh, you know, one is that we didn't, we needed to model this differently from our family and in terms of how we were talking to our girls about drinking and stress regulation. And we weren't big drinkers to begin with, no. but, but we noticed that when we went away, a lot of things got better, like sleep and stress and yeah. how I performed. How did you guys come to that realization? I know Laird's story a little bit and he's talked about it on the cat podcast, Larry, yeah. but, yeah, um, Larry. that's it's one of the, I, I feel like this is one of the keystones of living forever is man, you got to pay attention to that. I know. And sober, so boring, isn't it? No, I, um, you know, okay. So with Larry, we have very different paths. So his was basically, you know, for 10 years, at least the first 10 years I knew him, he was a, a high functioning alcoholic. So it was only Pinot Noir. It was only at home. He was still in bed before nine. Um, but it was every day and he was you know, Laird, as you, as you guys know, he doesn't do anything like sorta. And um, <laughs> I think I talked to him that way in my early 20, in my mid twenties, like, well, why couldn't you just kind of, he looked at me like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, and so when he, I think he realized that that would probably inevitably demo his whole life. I think he was like, oh, <laughs> I should stop. So that was his path. So for 12 years, he hasn't done that. And for me, quite frankly, if I could be honest, I grew up with, um, a lot of dysfunction around me, adults that were not in control. And one of those things I associated with was alcohol. And so I really remember thinking as a very young person, this doesn't seem really to work out. I mean, it seems kind of fun for a minute and like, oh, it's carnival and like they're dancing in the street, but it just kind of seems like shit blows up everywhere. So for me, I, I even in college, I think I got drunk twice in college. I was, I was pretty much like, could I make my life be a place I want to be all the time and not have to escape from? And you know what? Clearly you can't. Like, it's not like every living moment. I'm like, this is amazing. However, for me, it was, it felt important. And, but I have to be honest, it's probably connected to some of my control issues. Like I have to be in control is let's see if I can get through this for real as who I am in this moment. And, um, doesn't mean sometimes I don't think like, huh, shot of tequila would probably make, make Brody's behavior a lot funnier, but, um, I try, <laughs> I try to just kind of go. And then, you know what it is once it's not part of your everyday life and your friends aren't really doing it. Um, I just think that's easier. Having said that, I don't, I don't poo poo it for other people. I did this, this, this like beach lecture and of all places in Canada, and they were all on board for like 40 minutes. Like, Oh, Gabby, she's amazing. And then somebody said, do you drink? And I was like, no. And they were like, weren't, weren't like, <laughs> we can't even trust you. Yeah, you yeah. know, it is interesting though. I've I've noticed that people think that the act of not drinking is in and of itself a judgment of them. And it's not. I I yeah, I, it's have, not. I I can show you my my, you know, I can flash you my inside of my coat and tell you all of the things that I um am trying, you know, managing and uh, of my flaws. And so it isn't about that. It's just me having a really personal um this is my personal quest with it and and, um, and, and, and also like saying, Hey, is this celebratory or am I medicating? You know? And so I think it's all of that. Well, you know, I think that really is the, the perfect segue because, you know, what we started to realize is, wow, we really f didn't feel good in the moment. I was like, Ooh, you know, took the edge off, you know, I could come down, you mm. know, I had a glass of wine and then I didn't sleep well. <laughs> right. And that, that yeah. really started to back up and, you know, clearly there are some God, we know, everyone knows that there are these, just, you know, these, you know, tranches of, of things that are important. You know, you aggregate, you start to have to eat, not like a child at some point you have to, maybe you should consider not drinking all the time. But for us, it was about sleep. And one of the things that I know about your family is that it, re you guys really protect your sleep. It's got to feel like that's got to be part of this magic because we, I feel like we're just burning it at three ends and then we're so stressed out. We can't sleep. You talk about, I mean, Laird is, is the ninja. I mean, you hang out with Laird all of a sudden. He's like, late, I'm late. going to bed, you know? 
Yeah. And I mean, do you, do you, have you always known that, or did you gather that skill a little bit later on? Because it's something that we we Juliet and I protect. Like it's the number one thing we protect. Yeah, I think you know, I it's not really me. I think you know, Laird is being coming from a surfing background. Surfers typically go to bed early because they get up so early. Because in the old days, you wanted to be you know, be in the water before the wind came up or before too many people were there. So this is somebody who's always gotten up at 5 a.m. or what have you. And then, you know, it's after a while I get bored hanging out by myself and I go, well, I guess I, should, I guess I should go to bed. But um, it was not as easy for me. And, and quite frankly, it's always been hard. I'm always, you know, trying to figure out little cocktails of magnesium or this and that to to get to sleep because I'm, I'm a bit of a, of a mental grinder. And, you know, this is where I try to work everything out in my, in my sleep or all those conversations I want to have, or, or the list of things. So notebooks obviously by the bedside help, but Laird's been the big force and you guys have talked a lot about it. Like he's heavy duty about getting to bed pretty early. I try my best not to do too much in the room. Sometimes I do. Cause I'm like, I have not done one thing that was sort of just mindless fun for me in one day. And sometimes I do it there. And that's against a little bit the, our, our house policy. I own it hundred percent, but I'm like, for me to watch 20 minutes of a stand-up comedian or a documentary, what that gives me is I, I'm like, okay, I'll trade it at that time. Our room is cold. It's 64, 65. It's dark. He sleeps on a chili pad. I do not. Um, and I have found that sleep does beget sleep. So the more I get into that rhythm for me as a person who's not a good sleeper, it does really help. And it certainly helps the disposition of the kids and also how then we interact with each other. Yeah. You know, we were really um, obsessed with prioritizing sleep and our kids and people would say to us, man, your kids are so lovely and they're so nice. And Kelly and I always thought, man, we just make them sleep. Like it's actually, we're not doing anything else good. Oh, um, yeah. you know, well, a, excuse me. Interesting is that I, you know, Juliet and I have become so sensitive because we sleep in like, it's like the perfect setup. Yeah. And like, we both talk about like, I can't wait to go to the, to the sleep room and yeah. black out. And I, what I've found is that when I, I'm now so sensitive that, you know, I just was out teaching in New York and, you know, basically I'm getting up at two 30 in the morning to make these things happen. Two 30 local time, California, yeah. New York, I'm sleeping in a strange place, new bed, strange, you know, and I do that for three days and I come back and it's taken me a week to put myself back together. I just, it, it really has ruined me. And then, so then Jill and I were like, well, maybe we just need to drink all the time and not sleep so that we're not sensitized. We right. just are puffy and, you know, I can't lose you're my hair. Have I lost my hair? Right. And you're not precious. See, there's a, there's an interesting thing though about not being precious. And so, um, but I think if you, you know, listen, I think it's, it's saying, Hey, when I can get it and control it, I will. And when I can't, I'm going to roll with it and I'm going to be yeah. the best version of myself in that circumstance. And I'll worry about it, you know, in each scenario. I've definitely helped my friend with his, his luggage full of magnets that he's putting under his bed, you know, when we're <laughs> traveling. And I'm like, maybe that's excessive. Maybe that's a little precious. That may be a little precious. Yeah. Because the stress around it is worse than not to sleep. So that's it's like, right. Right. it's like people that are like, Oh my God, it's, I have to eat a meal. It's been two hours. It's like, okay, first of all, you don't need to eat a meal. And second of all, this stress that you're creating is just, you know, craziness. Yeah. We've been trying to teach our kids that they're like, well, I need to eat dinner. And we're like, but are you actually hungry? Like, do you need to eat? You know, is it yeah. actually, are you experiencing hunger? Welcome to the starts. We're the fun house. We're the, yeah. God, wah, wah. <laughs> you don't Talk need to eat. Wah, wah. I just want exactly. I just want to switch and make sure we get time to talk about XPT. And I'm hoping you can tell us what XPT is. You know, you and Laird are always doing such a good job at researching and innovating. And XPT is sort of your latest iteration of that. So, um, and, what and, is it? And, and what full do you disclosure, see? XPT yeah. and the principles therein have changed fundamentally changed our lives and given us more reserve. Like one of the things that I want to make sure that we're talking about here is that. We're not trying to frame this as like, do this, otherwise you're going to be crippled and decrepit, right? Instead, we're saying, man, if you start to take care of some of these basics earlier on, we can actually get more work done and feel better. I, I agree with that. And I, what I appreciate about that is, is sometimes I know it's very daunting for people. And what, you, what I always say is, listen, this is just an invitation. And we're just having a discussion around these things so that you have things to consider to support you, 
but not, hey, we've got the answers and this is how you do it. Because also even within our own lives, we do that better certain days and certain weeks than others. And also you, you have to go like, hey, I'm crazy. I have a crazy schedule. I know I'm only going to get five hours of sleep. Um, but XPT is, um, it was, I, I would say that I would say Laird's sort of the motor behind a lot of things, the impetus and the spark. And so XPT was, you know, it was standing for ex- extreme performance training. But, you know, if you ask Laird, it would be exploratory because our whole thing is how can we be our best selves or organism, optimum, our optimum, whoever we are, if we're an athlete, if we are, you know, at a time in our life, we're running children around, whatever we're doing, how can we be optimum wherever we are? And so we've got the the pool element, which I think is is sort of the most exotic element, the pillars of the of the brand are move, move, breathe, and recover. So the pool, we do things, speaking of aging, where you go, hey, I want to be ballistic. I want to do a thousand reps today. How can I do that and not just kill myself? So the water created that environment for us. And it also on the other side, gave Laird an opportunity to be more efficient and stronger in the water to support him um, for surfing. So that started about 12 years ago, and we were kind of all his crash test dummies, and and we managed to put together a pretty great uh, cohesive program. Um, The other parts are, so, and they talk a lot like you do, Kelly, but differently, not as extensive and and as much self-care, mobility, and even me. I don't squat correctly. My mechanics are terrible. So it's like getting these fundamental moves. How can I do this better so I don't hurt myself? And I'm just talking about in everyday life. And then breathing, which we were turned on to really through Wim Hof being the impetus for that and Rick Rubin. And it was sort of realizing, hey, this is a a really old practice. And this is something that we all do all day long. It's the most important, one of the most important things, functions we do for our body. And most of us are doing it wrong because we're mouth breathing. So breathing became a really important part of the practice because sometimes I I feel like we jump steps when we talk about self-care or some people call it wellness. And I think sometimes if we could try to lock into just some of the real basic things um, and try to do those decently, we start to give ourselves a fighting chance and then recover. And, and this was different for me because recovery wasn't like, hey, so do you, you know, do you take a day off and recover? And people say like, yeah, I, I take one day off a week. And it's like, then the notion was, okay, how do you support yourself in recovery? So then that's where the heat and the ice came in. Or for certain people, it could be stretching. For certain people, it could be a flushing cardio, whatever that is was to sort of have these pillars of uh, breathe, move, and recover. And, um, and, and could we s- figure out a way to simplify that and share it with other people? And, um, and that's what XPT is. You guys have a ton of resources. Where, where would people find out about that? Oh, my goodness. Well, they now have a breathing app, so they can go to xptlife.com. So let's say you want to ramp up or you want to downregulate before you go to bed or you know, before you kill your family members or you get ready for a big meeting, whatever tool you need. So we've got, we've got that. And um, we're starting to have, we have quite a few XPT certified coaches that are kind of popping up throughout the country. And, you know, the other thing that's really important about uh, XPT for us was this, we, we are not here to tell people what to do. Now, certain things like we know, like you guys know, like sleep is, is, it's good. It's a good thing. Hydration. It's important. Managing stress, valuable, but it was more about, could we get you to ask yourselves the question of how do I want to move? How should I eat to support myself? What feels good to me? Because a lot of times people, I know they want to be told what to do. But the other thing was, could you start that dialogue? Because by the way, that's a moving target. Like what I needed to do six months ago is not what I'm doing now. And it will not be what I need to be doing in another yeah, And it's got to fit into my life. I mean, I think that's the other, we love to just, I'm going to do the, the makeover three-day Carl Rogers where I yep. just reinvent myself purge everything. I, you know, I just had this conversation with a friend who was saying, she's like, she just saw this documentary game changers about everyone just going plant-based all of a sudden. And, uh, and I was like, Hey, hang on. Do you eat any vegetables already? And she was like, well, not really. And I was like, so you're just going to wholesale switch this over and just only eat vegetables, which you don't already currently eat. You know, that, you know, and also like all the science on this also is if you are eating actively a vegetarian or a vegan, the chances are you're 
a lot more conscious of what you're eating than because those studies also show like that means people who eat McDonald's, they're meat eaters, right? So I think sometimes that conversation, because I know there, it almost feels like there's some polit, I mean, like it almost at times feels like there's a polit, political pull to it. Um, I think that that is also a moving target. Like I, Paul Check, if you talk to him, he can go, he'll be a vegetarian for a year and then he'll be like, my soul told me to eat animal flesh. <laughs> You know, and I'm like, okay. So I just, yeah, it's interesting. The, you know, the other thing that w- one of the many things about XPT that I think is so cool um, is that, you know, it's a way for people to sort of put themselves a little bit outside their comfort zone. Mm. And I think- What do you mean? I, I, Tell me more about that. Well, I just, I believe that that is an important thing to do as humans. And, um, you know, having been to XPT and participated in it myself, Um, you know, I know for the first time I jumped in an ice bath, I was truly terrified and probably would not have gone unless Laird himself was coaching me into it. So Mm -hmm. I just think that that, you know, is, is another, there's so many pieces and parts of XPT that are so spectacular, but that's just, you know, another piece of it. I'm such a fan of. It turns out, uh, you know, to, to that extent, you know, we have heat has become a rock base of your family's practice and, and our family's practice. Yeah. And, and, uh, Dr. Patrick has, has demonstrated, you know, or continued to sum the research, which is pretty like, wow, you know, getting hot right. and maybe spending time at the, these extremes of making my body have to be really cold and make my body really hot can do a lot of protective things for my body. I've also found that sometimes like Julia, it's like, she's like, we're going to ride at six. I'm like, okay, so I need to be in the hot tub or the sauna at five thirty, getting yeah. hot. It really do. I feel better when I'm hot. How is, can you just talk for a second about the heat? Cause some, not everyone can do have a sauna at home, but it seems to be a really crucial and critical practice. Yeah. I mean, you're right about like the luxury of having it, but I, I do think now there's more and more places that you can sort of access. And I would always encourage people, let's say you've, you're in high stress and you're around a lot of people. I would see if you could actually try to squeeze it in alone, or at least not with people that are going to talk to you. And Conversely, if you're sort of running in one direction and your partner's running in another, there's something to be said for sitting in the heat with a with some a friend or a loved one. It's an interesting connecting place. So, so like you said, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, I mean, you know, any protocol she puts out there, Laird's like, let me try that. It's this idea of if we, you know, the recovery, heat shock proteins, um, all cause mortality goes down about 65% for men. Um, they talk about if you can get in there two, three times a week, um, minimizing Alzheimer's. So there's so many positive things you can do. I mean, obviously detoxing for people who are going to warm up or try to recover. I think the heat is the way to go. Ice is interesting because it's a hormone regulator. Um, I think ice almost needs to be dealt with separately in this way. Heat and ice as as an activity, great. Ice before an activity, great. Um, ice after training, I wouldn't. Because especially for people who go, hey, I'm trying to build strength and mass and all this stuff, ice, you want to do that separate in a way. Um, so, uh, you know, heat has been really created this profound improvement in our in our health. And we've also experimented with a lot of pro- protocols. We run it pretty hot, like 220 to 230. Um, but then you can do longer protocols at, a, you know, 170 and and for people go, I can't, I couldn't sit in there that long. It's sort of like, we'll go in for five minutes and see how it goes. Um, and even stretching, like for me as somebody who's a little stiffer, I'll turn it down 160, 170, and that's where I'll stretch. And it's so much better. But Amazing. don't get started about the assault bike in the sauna. Okay. Do you want me to, do you want to? <laughs> we, want we don't need to let everyone know that we're totally crazy. You guys are totally crazy. <laughs> oh, I, oh, no, no, no. I mean, every, you know, every time, you know, I, I, I practice a lot because when you co- when I go to your house and show up yeah. for uh, what we call Laird and Gabby fantasy camp, um, I'm like, I better have my A game. And every time it's more interesting and more ugly, which oh, is, yeah. you know, I mean, I mean, no, you, you guys okay. don't try don't to dose people to kill them. No, 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 I mean, intellectually sporty. Yes. I love it. No, no, um, and it's the favorite line is, oh, and certain experiments are doing, and, and then you'll hear one, somebody say like, and we don't even know if this is good for you yet. And, <laughs> you know, it's like some joke. <laughs> the other thing too, is if people measure their glucose, like if they were one of those glucose meters, when you go in the sauna, your glucose goes up. So they just need to, to know that. 
Um, I appreciate that. Have you guys figured out how to put an assault bike in an ice bath yet? Oh, you know what? Keep that to yourself. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, don't I know. I know you guys already have like a, a bathtub motor to make that. Yeah, that would be okay. Worth. Yeah, I know. That's okay. Well, look, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, first of all, you know, because this is really a topic about how do I get more done longer? And that longer is decades. Is that you're the first thing you mentioned is that you were, you were a member of a family, a team on, in, you know, in high school and then in college. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that if, if you had to strip everything away from what I have witnessed and observed in your life is that you guys are a tribe mm-hmm. and you really protect and nurture a sense of community and family. And uh, when I mean family, like the Ohana kind of style yeah. family, like there are a lot of people who are not in your direct family who are, are your family. Yeah. Do you, you, that seems to be like the one takeaway that when I walk out, I'm like, wow, these people are so fierce in their friendships and fierce in their community. You, even the way you sit down and eat dinner together every night, do you, do you feel like that maybe is the overarching thing? Because, you know, sleep is important. Maybe don't drink, eat some whole food. Don't be stressed. But yeah. that thing alone of being connected, and, and you even said being seen and, and sort of acknowledged in a community was like one of the one of the kind of backbones of your, your practice early on. Really quickly, too, Peanut Gallery, I uh, was at a presentation where someone put up a graph that said connection and community actually yeah. were more important to longevity than exercising and some other things. And red wine and resveratrol? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, resveratrol. Oh, yeah, Dr. Sinclair. Um, no, so... You know, uh, well, what is it? The Harvard study? What's the longest active study? Is it the Harvard study yeah. where they had, um, you know, uh, sort of lower socioeconomic kids around the school and they started measuring them at 14 to 16 ish. And then they had people of all walks of life uh, at Harvard. I believe it's the Harvard study. Forgive me. From 18 to, let's say, 21. And they came from all walks of life. And um they were obviously in the university, so they probably had a you know different set of circumstances. And they and I think and now the people are about eighty years old. And what they talked about was, you know, some of them have, were presidents, some were came in, were millionaires, lost everything, some became millionaires from nothing. And the, they said they could have checked them at forty and fifty, and they would have known all the answers at the same at eighty, which was they had a connection. Um, if not to just a partner, then to a community. And they felt loved and um, supported and they had this meaning, these meaningful relationships. And, and what I want to say about that that I've learned over the years is, you know, I grew up as an only, only child. So there's actually another part of my personality that really prefers to be alone usually. And, I, you know, um, I can avoid conflict and drama when I'm by myself and, you know, things like that. So what is interesting about feeling so drawn to the community is it doesn't mean I have to be best friends with everybody in that community. It means that I, we're all in agreement at this time. We're going to come here. We're going to bring our best and we're going to help each other be better. And then, you know what, we're going to go off into our lives. And some of us might spend extra time together breaking bread. Some of us don't do that. And it's, it is a shared love and support system which is also revolving around being better, right? We're not meeting at the bar and being like, okay, you know, drinks are on me. This is a moment where we're helping each other. And so I think that's really important sometimes for people when they think about building a community where there's people maybe I really enjoy talking to and visiting and have an intimate relationship with, and they wouldn't be a part of that community. And then I have people who are part of that community that I don't necessarily really want to hang out with after. So people, I think, kind of shouldn't be intimidated to give it a try because not everybody has to be your best friend. You're just in agreement. And listen, it's it's love, right? It's getting love. It's giving love. It's noticing if somebody looks down and going, hey, what's up? How's your day today? This is the stuff. I tell you, if I've learned anything on our like nascent podcast experiences to end on a summary high note, Gabby Reese, you are the, I don't know, how would my, uh, my German roots childhood, you're the Shiza. I am so grateful to know you and thank you so much for, thank for, you, yeah. for kind of giving us a glimpse because, um, you know, 
maybe I just didn't care because I thought I was going to be immortal or amortal, or I thought I might be dead by 30 just with all the <laughs> stupid kayaking we did. But uh, here we are, and all of a sudden, this really matters to me, and I really am grateful that I feel like so much of the influence from you and your family has you know, has set me up to be a much more functional and, uh, and useful human. Yeah, I mean, we are just so grateful and lucky to know you guys. Well, and I feel that way, and I, I love you guys, and I also really appreciate the idea of not only sharing the message, but I appreciate that you guys are trying to put the power into people's hands and getting them to realize like, I can be my best advocate for myself and how I feel. And um, because it, it can be a cloudy gray area. If somebody goes, hey, over here, you can do this. It's so helpful. So thank you. And, I, and like I said, I, I really love you guys. And uh, before we let you go, where can people find you on the internets and socials? Oh, my authorized or unauthorized spaces? <laughs> Either <laughs> <Okay>. one. <laughs> uh, no, I'm joking. Um, so XPT Life would have all of the information on XPT and the breathing app. Um, Gabby Reese, G-A-B-B-Y-R-E-E-C-E uh, is my, my Instagram. But really, um, you know, I, I just hope that for me, I want to connect with people in a way that like I can be a like con contribute to something. And uh, if they want to find me, they can. Word. Awesome. Word. Thank you so much, Gabby. Aloha. Thank you. <laughs> Aloha. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. The Ready State is the new home of MobilityWAD, where we've assembled the most comprehensive database of guided movement mechanics and mobility videos, all with the goal to help improve performance and eliminate pain. At its core, our message has always focused on helping you be more ready. Ready for your next race? Ready for your next workout? Ready to keep up with your kids? Pretty much ready for anything life throws your way. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time. Cheers, everyone. Kelly Starrett is the New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be happier and healthier in their lives. Juliette Starrett is the co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and The Ready State, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave. You got it. You better stop it.